Well, you can turn with me your Bibles to the prophet Joel, chapter 1. As we return to the minor prophets, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. <laughs> We're going to look at verses 1 through 12 this morning, but I will read all of chapter 1 to set the context. This evening, not this morning. We'll begin reading at verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new, uh, new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion." He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn who minister to the Lord. The field is wasted. The land mourns for the grain is ruined. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Be ashamed, you farmers. Wail, you vine dressers. For the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine has dried up, and the fig tree has withered. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, storehouses are in shambles, barns are broken down for the grain has withered. How the animals groan. The herds of cattle are restless because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. O Lord, to you I cry out, for fire has devoured the open pastures, and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field also cry out to you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the open pastures. Amen. Well, let us pray. O Lord our God, we are thankful for your justice. And we are thankful that you are gracious to warn about your coming justice, that coming day of the Lord, that terrifying day of the Lord, when you shall judge the living and the dead. And we're thankful for your warnings, and we're thankful that as you warn, you also call your people to eternal life. You give the gifts of faith and repentance to those whom are yours, who turn from their idols to the true and living God. And we know that you are the sovereign Lord over all things, and even when we see devastation, even when we read about desolation, especially when we consider it in light of the covenant curses that we read in Deuteronomy, help us to recognize that you're the God who does what he says he will. You will bring curse, and you have brought curse, even on the old covenant people for their violations of that covenant. Yet you're a God who is good, and you're a God who has brought blessing, and you've brought it in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Thank you for the promises that we have. Thank you for refreshment. Thank you for abundance. Thank you for all the good things that you've provided for your people. And so as we consider the terrifying reality of the day of the Lord, as we consider your covenant curses uh, that came upon Israel, may it cause us to stop. May it cause us to ponder. May it cause us to consider uh, what our sin deserves, namely everlasting punishment even as the day of the Lord comes. And we're thankful that Christ is the one who stood in our stead. We're thankful for that shocking news that the one who is the eternal son died on Calvary's tree for undeserving sinners like us. So we ask and pray that you would uplift your saints today. We pray if there are any here today who do not know you, please save. And we pray in all things you would be glorified. And we also do ask as we come and consider this difficult text, 
Help us to be awake and attentive. Please send your spirit to help us understand what is going on in the prophet Joel, for we need it. Be with us now by your spirit, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, some events in life are so shocking that they cannot be forgotten. Sometimes that shocking news is good news, but sometimes that shocking news is quite terrifying. And certainly the latter is in view here as we consider the terrifying reality of the day of the Lord that is coming upon the people of Israel. Israel has had their fair of shocking events, sometimes for good, for their salvation, but others are for their destruction. Now, Joel's prophecy is concerning an event that is so shocking that it needed to be remembered, needed to be recalled. The people must tell it to the generations to come. But the purpose of this was that as they remember what the Lord did to the people of Israel, that it would bring about repentance. It would bring about a change of mind concerning their status before the Lord God Most High. Because Israel as a nation, they did need to repent because the day of the Lord is coming. So we see a lot of uh, repentance in the prophet Joel because the people needed to do that. They need to return to the living God. And we know that in their history, they did not do that very thing. As far as some of the introductory material with the prophet Joel, I must confess, it is difficult. Joel is a tough book. There are some hard things to understand about the prophet Joel. I think the main ideas are clear, but some of the other stuff is difficult. I do think it is pre-exilic. It is pre-exile. I do think it is uh, with respect to the people of Israel prior to the time that they go into captivity. I do think it's after the northern kingdom has gone into captivity. I think Judah and Jerusalem seem to be in view. The house of the Lord seems to be in view. So it is pre-exilic. And its purpose is to warn of destruction, call to repentance, but also provide hope for refreshment as well. So to warn, to call, and to provide hope. And there are many different themes that we see in this book, namely the day of the Lord, not the Lord's day, but the day of the Lord refers to God's judgment and God's specific judgment. We see different days of the Lord throughout the Old Testament that point ahead to the time when God is going to come again to judge the living and the dead. There is a day of the Lord that is still going to come. The Bible teaches this uh, in the New Testament, pointing ahead to that time when Christ returns. There's also restoration in the book, repentance in the book, God's mercy in the book, as well as God's sovereignty over all things. And I do think we can structure the book in kind of two main headings. I follow Raymond Dillard here. We can highlight the disasters in chapters 1 and 2, really chapter 1 to 2.17. And then we see the answer to those disasters. And so you could take those two main headings and then we can make four subheadings under that. So there's the immediate disaster, the locusts, the impending disaster, the day of the Lord. And then in the latter half of the prophecy, God answers to those things. God answers and gives a remedy to those various disasters. If we call upon him, what will he do in light of those various disasters that we see? And so tonight we're going to see and start with that impending or that immediate disaster with respect to the locusts, with respect to this covenant curse. Now, the problem is very clear in chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. It is shocking news. It is terrifying news. A lush land, a land that is flowing with milk and honey, a man that had new wine and oil and grain is going to be barren. It's going to have nothing. It's going to be laid waste. It's such shocking news that it needed to be remembered. And we see the curse of the Lord by way of locusts and by way of men. And so the lesson that we see here is what the shocking news means for Israel, that the Lord has cursed Israel for their covenant violations. And so in Joel 1, verses 1 through 12, the people of God, likely Judah, are called to lament at the devastation the Lord is about to bring. They have to hear it. They have to pay attention to what the Lord is going to say. And then the proper response to that at this juncture is to wail. The proper response at this time is to cry out. Because they must consider the devastation. They must consider the gravity of what the day of the Lord means and what it means for the people of God. Israel has violated Deuteronomy. They have violated that old covenant, that covenant of works concerning life in the land. And God then will bring curse upon them because of that very thing. So the prophet Joel calls them to do two things in the verses tonight. 
He calls them to hear, and he calls them to wail. And those are my two points this evening. We'll see to hear of a land laid waste in verses 1 through 4, and secondly, to wail at a land laid waste in verses 5 through 12. To hear and to wail. To hear of a land laid waste and to wail at a land laid waste. So let's first look at to hear of a land laid waste in verses 1 through 4. And notice we see the introduction to the prophet in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Now again, the specific setting is difficult to ascertain. Some people think it's post-exile. I do think it is pre-exile, mainly because of the temple reference, mainly because of the Jerusalem aspect, Zion, the focus there, mainly because Judah is mentioned quite a lot uh, in this book. And so it's probably during a time when Jerusalem is surrounded. It could be in 701 BC when Sennacherib, basically the king of Assyria, almost takes out that southern kingdom, but then he doesn't. Hezekiah prays the Lord and the Lord routes Sennacherib and he does not take Jerusalem. Or it could be close to 586 when Jerusalem is actually taken out for good. When they're taken captive by the people of Babylon, by the king of Babylon, but in any case, it seems to be when Jerusalem is surrounded. Some people highlight it could be during the time of Joash, 2 Kings 12. In any case, it seems to be Judah, pre-exilic, and it seems to be there is a great threat that is surrounding them. So it's, some of that stuff is pretty tough to understand, but I'm quite fine saying that it's pre-exilic and pre-exile. Now, the mouth, mouthpiece is Joel, the son of Pethuel. Guess how much we know about Joel, the son of Pethuel? Basically nothing. We have no idea really who he is, under the, other than he's the son of Pethuel, and other than the fact that he is a mouthpiece of the Lord God Most High. That's really about it. So here's this guy, Joel, we don't know much about. He's obviously distinguished from other Joels, because there could have been a million Joels at that time. He is the son of Pethuel. So again, we don't know much about him, but clearly he is the most mouthpiece of the Lord, and he's calling Israel to repentance, but before we get there, he's calling them to lament over their destruction. So the word of the Lord comes to him and he calls them. He commands them to hear in verses 2 and 3. And he says, hear this, you elders. He's calling the inhabitants to pay attention. It's going to be a call of lament. He's calling them to wail. He's calling them to cry. He's calling them to cry out to God because of the devastation that is going to happen. The implication seems to be that Israel has been in a spiritual slumber. And certainly we've seen that throughout the other prophets. We've talked about how when the prophets come on the scene, especially the visions, why the visions are so jarring is because the people got sleepy. And so these visions need to jar the people awake, need to jar the people to open their eyes and see what is happening all around them. So he wants them to pay attention. He wants them to listen, hear this, and not just hear it, but know it by experience. Hear it and know it. Hear what is about to happen. And so he addresses first the elders. Hear this, you elders. He starts with the elderly, then he deals with the inhabitants. Now, as we saw this morning in 2 John, uh, elder, I think there, probably primarily referred to the office, although it could have that age factor. Tonight, it's the age factor. He's calling the elderly to jog their memories. You have been around the longest. You have seen the most out of all the people who are living at this time. I need you to think back in the annals of your brain to see and remember anything quite like what is about to happen. Because something so terrifying is about to happen that you need to think about what is about to happen and what's about to occur and see if there's anything quite like it. So he says, give ear all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days? Has anything like this occurred or even in the days of your fathers? Has anything so terrifying ever occurred? Now, brethren, we can answer that question. It has. Something very similar has happened, but it didn't come upon the people of Israel. It came upon the people of Egypt. You can turn with me your Bibles to Exodus chapter 10. The eighth plague. I haven't even got to verse 4 yet, but as we've seen, we've already read it. 
What he's referring to in Joel 4 is the locusts. And so obviously it draws our attention back to the eighth plague in Exodus chapter 10. And as you know that story, we see the people of Israel are in bondage under Egypt, under Pharaoh. And so God raised up Moses to go and let the people go and to be the mouthpiece. I guess Aaron functions as the mouthpiece, mouthpiece for, Moses, uh, for Moses, but it's to let the people go. And God is demonstrating his might over Pharaoh. And he's demonstrating his might over the gods of Egypt. There is no God like our God. And so we see he's going to send these locusts. He, God said he's hardened Pharaoh's heart. I show him all these signs that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your sons the mighty things I have done in Egypt. And so then eventually he brings about these locusts that uh, come about, he says, uh, in verse 4, or else if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory and they shall cover the face of the earth so that no one will be able to see the earth and they shall eat the residue of what is left, which remains to you from the hail and they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. So it was cursing upon Israel. It was God's justice, uh, sorry, justice upon Egypt to bring Israel up out of the land of Egypt. And we do see uh, in verse 14, they were very severe. Previously, there had been no such locusts as they, nor shall there be such after them. So it was so terrifying. It was so devastating that vegetation, the things that people needed, they were completely laid waste by God and by these locusts. Israel should have remembered that. Israel should have remembered God's mighty deeds to bring them up out of the land of Egypt. And so then we go from God's goodness to Israel here, his judgment upon Egypt here, and things have changed during the time of Joel. Now it's going to be the people of Israel who are going to face God's covenant curse. Has anything happened? Has anything occurred that is so devastating? And we know that the day of the Lord is more devastating than that. But has anything such like this happened uh, in their hearing? Now, again, they should have known that. Has anything happened? But something greater is going to happen as well. And so they must tell it. They must not do uh, what they had done before and forgotten it. Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. That's kind of a sad bedtime story for the children. As you're going to bed, hey, there's this locust that happened. We need to remember what occurred. The kids are never going to go to sleep when they tell that story at night, but they need to remember it. They needed to know it. They needed to pay attention. They needed to hear because they needed to be shaken out of their slumber and make sure that they don't do what their forefathers had done. That's why they need to tell it. Hear this, all you elders, tell it to your children. And then we do see what it is that is going to happen. We see what God is going to do, verse 4. Now, there's a lot of ink spilt on what this means. <laughs> And there's a lot of difficulty on what it means, but I'm going to read it and then I'll try to parse out what is going on here. What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. Now, some people view this as literal. Now, that isn't necessarily wrong because we do see in Deuteronomy 28, a sign of covenant cursing are the locusts that God is going to bring upon Israel should they not do what he says and they don't do what he says. And so now God is bringing the covenant curse upon them by way of these locusts. So that's not wrong. It's a sign of covenant curse. It could be an actual literal locusts that have come. And some people have tried to explain it as there are different stages. Uh, the different locusts here are different stages. I didn't go that far. I just think the main point is how consuming it is, how all consuming and devastating it is. One locust comes, he eats a bit, the next one comes, and the next one comes, and the next one comes until everything is gone. Until every, there is absolutely nothing that is left. So the literal interpretation isn't necessarily wrong, but certainly the figurative interpretation squares with verse 6, that it refers to men. It refers to nations. It refers to the surrounding armies. It refers to those ones who've come and God is using as instruments of judgment against them. Because we see in verse 6, for a nation has come up against my land. 
strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. So it does seem to be that covenant curse have come upon it, but it perhaps also could carry with it the idea of this impending disaster, not just the immediate disaster, but the impending disaster of a nation that shall come around them. Because what God is going to do is going to bring judgment. Now, one thing that's different about uh, with Joel than we saw with Hosea, Hosea just hammers their sin, doesn't he? There certainly is the threat of, of, of exile and the punishment that one will receive, but it you're awful. You're, ter- you're terrible. You're adultery. You're this. I remember chapter 6 through 11. That was a long slog. You're vile. You're awful. You're adulterous. You're terrible. And every week I was like, okay, I got to hammer the people with this again. But we need to hear how sinful we are. But we also need to know what our sin le- where our sin leads. And Joel's emphasis seems to be on the punishment part of it. That is where, where our sin goes, uh, what our sin will bring. And it brings curse. It brings devastation, it brings lament, it brings crying out, it brings absolute destruction. And I think he's highlighting all of this to shake the people out of their slumber. And brethren, sometimes, even as the people of God, even as the redeemed saints, we sometimes can grow sleepy, right? In our Christian walk, we can go, grow sleepy to the things of God And it's because we don't hear the word of God when we ought to. And sometimes the Lord God, according to his wise providence, shakes us out of our slumber with something that comes to pass. Again, I'm not saying God is cursing you with that, but the point I'm trying to highlight is we need to remember and hear the word of God. The people forgot the word of God. The people didn't listen to the word of God. The people didn't pay attention to the word of God. Thankfully, God is good to wake us up when we grow sleepy. I had this teacher in grade nine, and when students began to fall asleep and shut their eyes and put their heads down on that desk, he would walk over with some sort of metal sheet or some sort of metal thing, and he wouldn't drop it on their head, but he would drop it right by their head. So it would be this boom, and then they would freak out when they woke up. Sometimes we need that, don't we? Sometimes we need God to drop that metal thing right beside our heads so we're paying attention to him. We're paying attention to his word, and God in his goodness does that. Sometimes it's a kind rebuke from a friend. Sometimes it's a difficult situation that arises where we need to learn something in that situation. What, uh, what we mean for evil and what man means for evil, God does mean for good. And that's an encouragement all the people of God can take with us each and every day. Even the difficult things, even the devastating things are part of the providence of God. And you know what? Therefore, are good. In the moment, I'm not saying you shouldn't cry. In the moment, I'm not saying you shouldn't mourn. In the moment, I'm not saying you shouldn't be sad. We should. I mean, that's difficult times and difficult situations. But God does mean it for our good. And after we grow and after we ponder and after we grieve properly, Maybe we can ask the Lord to help us see what we need to learn and understand. Because devastating events do shake us and awaken us. And certainly, uh, for those that are not in Christ Jesus, who die in their trespasses and sins, when the day of the Lord comes, that's it. And that's going to be a terrifying wake-up call. It's going to be a terrifying moment that you cannot escape from. And so that's why before Christ comes back, flee to Christ now. Look to him now, find life in him now, please believe on him now, and flee the wrath to come. Because we need to hear about the land laid waste, and God will lay waste to this present world. He'll lay waste to this fallen world, believe on him, and be part of the world to come. Now again, these devastations are meant to elicit a response And the hope is, for those who I just called out, it is repentance, to turn from your idol to the true and living God. But as we see in the context here, the first response is mourning, crying, wailing. And so we'll move from to hear of a land laid waste to now to wail at a land laid waste in verses 5 through 12. So we'll transition to wail at a land laid waste, to cry out for it, to mourn for it. And so we see that he addresses perhaps three types of people, although verses 8 through 10 will be a general reference to the people of Israel, but he starts with the drunkards. And we see that in verse 5. 
And so we see how the locusts are going to affect various groups. And he's doing that on purpose just to see how universal this judgment is going to be and how affected everyone is going to be by this desolation. And so a drunkard, rather than a cry of merriment, rather than a cry of joy and elation, he is going to cry out in weeping. He says, awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. That is, the blessings of wine, the blessings and joy that come from it are going to be no more. Wine is a sign of blessing. The drunkards then abuse that blessing. And so what is God going to do? A sign of cursing is when there is no flowing wine. When there is no abundance, when there is no place for joy and merriment, it's going to be gone. They've abused it, and the one who's now abused it is going to wail because he's not going to have it. It's going to be gone. The wine is going to cut off. These invaders are going to come, and they're going to devastate it. And certainly we see in Deuteronomy 28, it does refer to actual locusts as a sign of God's covenant cursing, but it also does refer to invaders who come and destroy all that Israel worked for. All the agricultural preparations just going to be gone, and others are going to enjoy it. Others are going to drink of it, and that is also a sign of God's covenant cursing. For a nation, verse 6, has come up against my land. So God is the one who's doing all this, but it's still his land, strong and without number. I mean, that's the imagery that locusts elicit. They, we see that there's, there's so many that even the sun is darkened. I mean, that's the language we're going to see uh, in chapter 2. The gloominess, the darkness, the thick clouds. I mean, part, that's probably perhaps connected with these devouring locusts. There's swarms as they go about. So they shall come without number. They shall come ready to devour. They shall come and be like a lion, fierce. His teeth are the teeth of a lion. And he has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. Those blessed things, again, that sign of abundance and blessing. He has stripped it bare. He has ruined it. He has splintered it. Its branches are made white and nothing. They are splintered and they are gone. And the sad part is sometimes something that takes so long to build up can be just destroyed in minutes, right? Something so good God has provided it for them. God has been with them and patient and long-suffering with them. It's now just going to be destroyed. It's going to be removed by, a, by this invading nation. Like that strong nation, without number, they shall come and lay waste to the vine because of their wickedness. And so the drunkard is going to mourn, but then we see a general mourning with a few people Different groups mention verses 8 through 10, but perhaps verse 8 is a charge to Judah. She is like a virgin. Judah is like that virgin. Notice the image seems to be a wedding that doesn't take place. Rather than a white dress, it's going to be sackcloth and ashes. Isn't that great? Like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. It's like this anticipation for a blessed wedding, and then it's going to be no more. She's going to be removed. She's going to have nothing. She's not going to have her husband because everything is going to be laid waste. Then he transitions to deal with some of the house of the Lord. We'll talk more about that uh, next week, Lord willing. But we see the grain offering and the drink offering. Those, those things that are part and parcel uh, for daily worship, the morning and evening worship, the grain offering, the drink offering, they're going to not be able to do it. They're not going to be able to worship God aright because they've been so wicked and have not worshipped him aright. The grain offering, the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord and the priests mourn who minister to the Lord. They don't have it. They cannot do it. They don't have enough. They don't have enough to be able to worship God accordingly. And then he goes on to highlight why the, the land is going to be desolate. The field is wasted, verse 10. The land mourns, the grain is ruined, the new wine is dried up, the oil fails. Everything that signifies blessing is going to be no more. Everything that signifies God's goodness is going to be no more. It's going to be laid waste. 
That is what their sin is going to bring. Again, the emphasis is on that destruction. Sin brings destruction, but the emphasis here is on said destruction. So there's going to be a general mourning. Those things that signify abundance will be no more. The land is laid waste, and the land will be desolate. And then the third group is in verses 11 and 12. Farmers, the ones who actually reap the harvest, the ones who actually reap what they sow, they're going to have no more. Be ashamed, you farmers. They're going to have no pride and joy because it's going to be no more. They're not going to be able to provide for their family because it's going to be no more. Wail, same word as we saw with the drunkards. Wail, you vine dressers. Cry out in sorrow for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field has perished. There's going to be no new wine and there's going to be no grain. There's going to be no harvest. Everything that is required for sustenance is going to be utterly laid waste. Farmers without crops, fine dressers without wine. There's going to be no place for food and, and such. There's going to be no place, excuse me, for joy. All the good things that God has provided. God does give us good things in this world, doesn't he? The problem is that we, do, we abuse them. The problem is we take those good things and we make them bad gods. And we see that God is going to remove those good things that they've made bad gods. The vine has dried up. The fig tree has withered. The pomegranate tree. The palm tree also. The apple tree. And all the trees of the field are withered. They are ruined. They shall be no more. And he ends this start to the prophecy by saying, surely joy, surely mirth has withered away from the sons of men. Grain, wine, and oil are gifts from God. They are temporal gifts of God that God gave to the people of Israel, and they're going to be no more. Brethren, God does bring good things and give good things, not just to his people, but he gives good temporal things to unbelievers as well. The rain falls upon the just and the unjust. And thanks be to God that he saved us to see that he gives those very good things. And those who do not believe in Christ are going to die without excuse because they did not serve the Lord God they do not recognize that all that they have is from him. All that they have is because of his, his goodness towards those uh, to this fallen world, to give good things. That's what the rainbow signifies in the sky, right? It does not signify what the LGBTQ people want to think, it want to think that it signifies. It signifies the fact that God is not going to judge the world again the way in which he did with the flood until that final day. And as that rainbow is in the sky, it signifies that there can be seed time and harvest, that there can be seasons, that, that the hopefully man can be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and enjoy good things. And there can be justice. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man's blood he shall be shed. Now we know in a fallen world that does not happen perfectly. But nonetheless, God has given good things to this fallen world and we see that Israel enjoyed those good things as a special chosen people of God. And those good things that are given for temporal purposes, but also for Israel as a nation, are going to be no more. That surely joy, mirth, has withered away from the sons of men. Mirth is used in Ecclesiastes to describe those good gifts that God gives. As we read Ecclesiastes, as we went through it, we saw that in this fallen present world, it's not wrong to enjoy those good things, but it's wrong to abuse those good things. And if we abuse those good things, we see that God removes those very good things. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. And the lesson seems to be surely God will not always strive with the wicked. Surely God will one day judge this world and if one does not believe upon him, do not believe upon Christ, they will die in their trespasses and sins, and they shall be punished. They shall receive the punishment that is due unto them forever. And it'll be far worse than a land laid waste. I mean, this is just the imagery to help us be awake and attentive to understand where sin leads and what sin brings. 
Now the lament, again, is supposed to lead to mourning. That is the first thing he's trying to call them to. But the book, as it moves along, the other response that is meant to be elicited is repentance. Now, we should lament over destruction. It's not wrong to do that. It's not wrong to lament over this destruction that we see here. It's legitimate. One writer says, talking about happy and unhappy memories, he says, well, happy events leave memories that are not without benefit. So, too, in my view, do unhappy and bitter ones. The former stir the listeners to a longing for virtue, whereas the latter instruct them to avoid the experience of evil before its onset. Here's what's going to happen. Here is the sad thing that's going to occur. Here is destruction that's going to take place. Flee from it. Run from it. Don't, Don't die in your trespasses and sins if you're not in Christ, but believe upon him while you can, while the Lord may be found. He goes on to say, what brought other people punishment is the means of uh, preventing our desire to be involved in similar pursuits. We need to not just, so we need to lament over this destruction. It's sad what it brings that all these things are gone. But more importantly, we are to lament over what led to this destruction. Israel should have lamented over their own sin. Theologically, when we consider the doctrine of repentance, It means the changing of one's mind concerning sin. That is, we learn what sin is, we learn how sinful we are, and we change our mind concerning it. We turn from our idols, as 1 Thessalonians says, we turn from our idols to the true and the living God. Faith and repentance go hand in hand. Certainly there are two sides, as some say, to the coin of conversion, turn from, turn to, but the principal and most important act is faith, believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We turn from our sin, we have this change of mind concerning it, and then we look to Christ Jesus, our Lord. We need to lament over what leads to that destruction, which is sin, and thankfully there is a God who forgives sin. There is a God who is merciful and gracious. There's a God who is kind. And thankfully, he does forgive us and forgives his people of their sins. One other wonderful thing that the Lord is going to do, he's going to judge his enemies. And that is a wonderful thing for the people of God. You might think I'm weird by saying that. If you've been here for any number of years, you know that that's not actually that weird. But you can turn with me to the book of Revelation, Revelation 9. I talk a big game with Revelation, by the way, but I have no idea what I'm talking about when we come to the book. Uh, And one of those passages is probably Revelation 9. (laughs) There is an allusion in Revelation 9.8 to verse 6, the teeth of the lion. And there's going to be a lot of uh, revolutions, revelations, uh, allusions to Revelation Uh, sorry, allusions to Joel in the book of Revelation. There we go. But Revelation 9. So again, there's a lot of ink spilt on what Revelation means. I do believe it's written for the church. I do believe it's a visionary prophecy. And I do believe when we consider that it's a visionary prophecy, we don't interpret literally, we interpret it figuratively because it refers to something uh, using figurative figures and metaphors because you can know what a vision is by what the metaphors do. And so what does a trumpet do? Joel actually has trumpets, blow the trumpet. What does a trumpet do? It sounds the alarm. And I do think, again, there are differing views, but I do think the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls all refer to the same thing, just in in more intensity, uh, just from different angles. Uh, It does refer to the fact, I think, it refers to the times between Christ's first and second coming to uh, encompass all of that, but it also describes that God is the one who's going to bring judgment upon his enemies, and it's going to be complete. Now, why is that important for the people uh, that John is writing to, to the church? Well, there were kings and emperors who hated them. There were emperors who persecuted them, And the persecuted need to know that God is on the throne. And they need to know that God is going to judge his enemies. Certainly we pray that God would save the perpetrators and save the persecutors. But it's not wrong to pray that God would bring judgment upon his enemies. And so the seals, what does a seal do? It it kind of, it's a stamp. It highlights ownership. 
And so the seals indicate that God is the owner of judgment. God is going to be the one who brings judgment, right? And as we saw trumpets, they sound the alarm. And then the bowls, they highlight that the wrath has reached its pinnacle and now they're ready to be poured out. The wrath has been filled up and now they're ready to be poured out. And the wrath is going to be poured out on those who are not Christ's. And so we certainly see this with this fifth trumpet. Uh, sorry, with, yeah, the fifth trumpet, the locust from the bottomless pit. Wow, you guys are in for a treat tonight. Oh, man. Anyway, difficult things to understand. But I think verse 1, I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Some believe that this refers to the devil, that fallen angel. And so we, uh, they highlight the fact that God is sovereign over all, but he's going to use the devil who hates the Lord uh, as his instrument in the fallen world, which God is sovereign over all things. So he seems to be the one who is fallen. He seems to be the one who fell out of heaven. That seems to be in view. And then the bottomless pit is opened up. He is the one of the bottomless pit anyway. Smoke arose out of that pit like the smoke of a great furnace, so the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth. Now again, locusts swarm, locusts devour, locusts bring torment. And he had, to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And notice verse 4, they were commanded not to harm the grass or the earth or any green thing or any tree. So not supposed to harm the world or harm the vegetation. That's already been done uh, in the first trumpet. But we see, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So again, whatever we want to say about what the locusts are and what they might be or what they might do, one thing is clear, they're not going to attack the people of God. They're not going to hurt the people of God. Notice it's very clear. It says there who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. God is bringing judgment upon those not in Christ Jesus. And then verse five, and they were not given authority to kill them. So they're not going to be killed, but torment them for five months. Now it's not literal five months, but what it teaches is it's not going to be forever. They can't be killed. It's not going to be forever, but God is going to nonetheless judge in this way. And in those days, men, verse 6, will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. It's going to be bad, so much so that men want to seek death. Then he goes on to describe the locusts. Verse 7, the shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, probably swift. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, perhaps, and, and their faces were like faces of men, intelligence. They had hair like woman's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth, fierce. And they had breasts like the breastplate of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into the battle. They had tails like scorpions, etc. Their power was to hurt men five months. And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. That is referring to the devil. And so we see here that these locusts seem to be, some people believe it's referring to actual men, which is not necessarily wrong. Others believe they are referring to demons and malignant spirits. Now, the two really do go hand in hand, especially when you consider the fact that what do demons do? Well, what's their purpose to do? They inspire false worship. And who love themselves more than anyone? Kings in high places. So even though the king of Babylon and the kings of Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament are God's instruments of judgment, yet nonetheless, it could be the case because they are against God that there is a demon behind those very men. That's not outlandish. In fact, I was talking to someone a couple nights ago about Lucifer. Lucifer in Isaiah 14. Who does that refer to and what does that refer to? It's talking about the fall of the king of Babylon. Now, one writer that I really like and one writer that I'm finally allow, allowed to say is going to be here next year and is going to preach and teach at the next conference. He says he thinks it does, even though it's talking about the fall of Babylon, it's also talking about the fall of Satan in his original state in Isaiah 14. Because what's behind Babylon? What's behind the king? It is perhaps the devil and perhaps evil spirits. So it's not that outlandish. And I mean, Paul does say our 
our, our war is against not flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. And how is that then fleshed out? Well, it's in fleshed out with men who hate the true and living God. And so it's against principalities and powers. Again, we don't always, demons are subtle. Demons do, they're powerful and mighty, but nonetheless, they cannot harm the people of God. That is clear. We saw that in 1 John. If one is in Christ, if one has been born of God, they cannot harm you. The devil cannot touch the people of God, but they can torment those who do not have the seal. And that is a sign of God's judgment. Matthew Henry, that was a lot. But Matthew Henry says, Out of this dark uh, smoke there came a swarm of locusts, one of the plagues of Egypt, the devil's emissaries headed by the Antichrist. All the rout and rabble of anti-Christian orders to promote superstition, idolatry, error, and cruelty. Just as an aside, John Gill goes after the papists <laughs> with this one uh, in, in, in uh, Revelation 9. But Matthew Henry says, And these had by the just permission of God, power to hurt those who had not the mark of God in their foreheads. The hurt they were to do to them was not bodily, but a spiritual hurt. They should not in a military way destroy all by fire and sword. The trees and the grass should be untouched and those they hurt should not be slain. It should not be a persecution, but a secret poison and infection in their souls, which should rob them of their purity and afterwards of their peace. Heresy is a poison in the soul, working slowly and secretly, but will be bitterness in the end. Whatever, one, whatever someone might think about what is going on here, certainly that seems to be a good way to encompass what is going on in Revelation. God is going to torment, not physically, he's going to torment spiritually with by way of heresy that is poison to the soul. It's a curse on those who are not in Christ Jesus. And certainly John, or I guess the angel telling this to John, does highlight the fact that he has Joel 1 in view with those teeth. The teeth were like the lion's teeth. So we really move from the locusts against Egypt, the locusts against Israel, and the locusts now and will be against those who are not in Christ. It's more universal, but those who are not in Christ Jesus. Now, let's just close on a bit of comfort. And the comforting thing is the fact that the people of God are sealed. We have been set apart we have been imprinted by the Holy Spirit. This is very clear in Ephesians chapter 1, and it's very clear in Ephesians chapter 4. We have been sealed for the day of redemption. We might go through suffering and torment in this fallen world, the hands of persecutors, but we can never be touched by the devil. We can never be, we can be tempted by the devil, but we can never be touched by the devil. We are in Christ Jesus, our Lord, and he has triumphed over all. That is the point of Revelation, the triumph of the Lamb. We see in the seventh trumpet, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one who reigns over all things. And he is our God, and we are his people. As Revelation 21 says, he shall be the temple. He is the, whoever believes on him, he is their God, and, he is, and they are his true Son, And that is the comfort and encouragement all of God's people need. In a world filled with sadness and sorrow, it's a blessing to know that we have fled the judgment to come in Christ Jesus. He has brought abundance. He has brought fruitfulness. He has brought blessing. Sin leads to desolation, barrenness, and curse. But God has brought wonderful things. And in fact, we'll close with Joel 2, 25 through 27. There's going to be a lot of reversals in Joel. And we see the reversal of the locust plague in verses 25 and through 27. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, 
I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. That's what God is doing with this call to lament, this call to crowd out destruction that his people might recognize where refreshment, where blessing, where life comes from, that we might turn from our living idols to our, <laughs> turn from our wicked idols, our false idols, to the true and living God, which is in Christ Jesus. He says that very clearly, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for all that you teach us in the scriptures concerning sin, concerning how wicked and how vile it is, but also concerning the punishment that is a result of sin. And we know that sin truly leads to desolation. Sin truly leads to barrenness. Sin leads to curse. And we are thankful that Christ was that curse for us who hung on Calvary's tree, who hung in our stead, who died upon the cross. Thank you for that blessed news, that good news, that Christ has lived, died, and rose again. And we ask and pray that we would be comforted by that and that we would know the refreshment that we have in Christ because of it and that we would know all the blessings that we have in him. Thank you that he is our triumphant lamb who reigns upon the throne even now. Even when we have to deal with suffering and sorrow and persecution in this world, help us to know that you are God and help us know we can put our hope and trust in you. And thank you that even though you teach us terrifying things about your justice, thank you that you, I pray that you'd help us to recognize the beauty and blessedness of your justice, especially in light of what Christ has done. So we pray that if we need to be shaken a little bit tonight, if we need to be awakened and getting a little sleepy in our Christian walk, please awaken us tonight and help us to press on in faith and trust in you. And we pray for any here today who do not know you, please save their souls. And we ask and pray uh, that you'd help us to recognize where all our goodness comes from, where all our blessings flow, and they certainly flow from you. So thank you for who you are and what you've done. Thank you for the salvation we have in Christ. Thank you for the refreshment that we have in Christ. We pray that today would have been refreshing to the souls of your people. Please uplift us and encourage us as we walk in this fallen world. And thank you that we have abundant life in you. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.